A huge thank you to this week's sponsor, Claremont Village Eatery. Located in the Claremont Village, next to the seven Claremont Colleges, they have a fun spin on avocado toast. They're the house of the pigacado, paninis, burritos, house tart lemonade, jamaica, and iced teas, and more. They only use olive oil and avocado oil in their cooking, and they have vegan, gluten-free, and vegetarian options. Breakfast and lunch is served all day. Call or text orders to 909-675-2189. you're listening to A Culture of Beauty, and I'm your host, Sequoia Sierra, where we discuss the various ways we can elevate and affect the culture through beauty. Our guest today is Leo Severino, a native of Los Angeles, producer of Bella, Little Boy, This is the Year, which is in production now, and Mary in development. Leo is a two-time graduate of USC with a bachelor's in philosophy and a JD from Good School of Law. He is the author of Going Deeper, a reasoned explanation of God and truth, available through Ignatius Press, a lecturer of Thomistic theology, and he was the youngest director of business affairs at 20th Century Fox. He is a partner at Metanoia Films and Novo Media Group, and a father to three beautiful children. Welcome, Leo. <laughs> Thank you so much, Sequoia. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Yes. So you started off in law, and then you went into film. So let's let's talk a little bit about that because that's kind of a, a bit of a leap unless it was entertainment law. <laughs> well, that's it, yeah. I went to, to USC and most everyone there goes in because they want to do entertainment law. It's kind of uh, very coveted, probably for very superficial, ugly reasons. I know we're going to be talking about beauty, so right. I'll start with that. And <laughs> I, I was one of those. And uh, at the time, I went through a pretty serious kind of uh, conversion of heart. Decided I don't want to do something a little, a little different. But I thought, uh, nonetheless, the entertainment field might be the way to go. And so uh, it turns out that many producers started as uh, attorneys at studios or at entertainment companies because as an attorney, there's there's kind of two roads. The, the first is the litigation, people that go to court, represent people, that sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. And then that's called legal affairs. And then there's business affairs, which is the negotiation of contracts and you know the execution. And that side of the entertainment law, it deals with the production from, from beginning to end because there's contracts every every right. step of the way from development to the financing to mm -hmm. getting the actors and the writers, making sure the rights are secured, and then the distribution. And so a lot of these guys wind up jumping to become producers, and that kind of happened with me. Okay, wow. And so you said you had a conversion, though. So what, what sparked that conversion? Was it you were already working as an entertainment lawyer? Or I was not. I was in law school. Okay. It was my third year of law school. And I was actually studying abroad in England, and I um, providentially came upon a book by C.S. Lewis. I mean, I knew him from the Narnia series, but I had no idea that he was a, a philosopher mm -hmm. and that he was a theologian. And I read this book, and it just rocked my world. I started reading it at 7 p.m. Mm -hmm. one night and finished it at 7 in the morning. Oh, wow. And, and <laughs> everything changed. It was The book is The Problem of Pain by C.S. Lewis. The Problem of Pain? Yeah. I'm actually not familiar with that title of his. Oh, I recommend it. So I'm gonna have I recommend to it highly. Yeah, he's actually one of those authors where you hear, okay, this book of C.S. Lewis had an effect on my life, and there's these different obscure titles where it's it's kind of like you, you hear about them from these conversion experiences. Yeah, well, I've read them all. After I read that book, I knew for all of my 
supposed pedigree and all of my academic successes mm-hmm. in education when I really knew nothing. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so I was kind of left in this void because I, I, I realized, well, if I'd been ignoring the most important thing this entire life, which is God, obviously, I can't trust myself. And so I just started reading everything that Lewis read. Yeah. And then once I got through with that, mm-hmm. I figured, uh, you know, where, where do I go next? So I started reading everyone that, that he had cited mm-hmm. but that I knew was an influence on him. Okay. And they all happened to be a bunch of Catholics. Right. <laughs> so here I am. <laughs> wow, that's amazing. You Wait, know. so you were already a practicing Catholic at the time? Uh, and... No, sadly. I mean, I grew up culturally Catholic. Okay. My parents are from uh, South America. Mm-hmm. And my mom, uh, my dad always kept the faith. Mm-hmm. And my, particularly my mom was very pious. But um, by the time I got into academia, it just uh, sadly was, I didn't, it wasn't rooted deeply in, in anything mm-hmm. that could uh, face the onslaught of secularism and agnosticism and atheism and, you know, liberality and whatnot of college. And uh, of course I believe myself, but, um, but I didn't have any formation. And when I started actually learning the faith, that's when I actually started practicing it. So. Right. Wow. At least I'm trying to. Right. <laughs> well, we're always a work in progress until we're six feet under, like they say. Um, well, even then, if we're, if we're stuck in purgatory. Right. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> so then, you know, you're saying that that you kind of just, you know, you read C.S. Lewis and you read everybody that had an influence on him. So is that what kind of set you off on the path yes. deeper into theology? It, yes, exactly right. Exactly right. So I, I'd studied philosophy for a good long while, got a couple of degrees in that, and um, not really a lot of theology. Mm-hmm. And once I, I started, my mind was opened up to this world of theology that was kind of the underpinning and ultimately the end of philosophy. I really realized I, uh, if I believe this stuff, I have to uh, start making some changes in my life. Mm-hmm. And it was a, it was a long journey. It went from my third year in law school through a few years at the uh, at a law firm in Orange County, and then uh, and then at 20th Century Fox, as you mentioned in the. Uh, introduction there mm-hmm. which makes it sound like you're talking about some really old dude <laughs> but it's uh, really accomplished not really old <laughs> right. well thank you <clears throat> but um at uh it was at 20th century fox i was uh, it was my third year in my contract was about to be up and um i was at mass praying because i knew i was part of the kind of this bigger entity and that i seemed to be formally complicit in a lot of projects that i wasn't proud of mm-hmm. um and and i was very ashamed because i here i've considered myself a practicing Catholic at that time. And, and I knew a lot of this stuff was wrong and yet I was either tangentially or directly involved in it. And so I was just going to mass and, um, I was praying and in walked this Mexican superstar, this crazy good looking young guy. And we got to talking and it turns out he is like the Brad Pitt of Mexico. And he was going through <laughs> a similar situation. His name's Eduardo mm-hmm. Verastegui. Uh, I'm sure a lot of your listeners know of him cause he's, right. he's, he's an awesome devout man now. And we were kind of going through similar journeys. And so we connected and I decided to leave Fox. He decided to leave everything and we started Methanoia Films. And here, here we are. Wow. So then after your conversion, is that the point where you felt drawn more to do film, to focus on film? Well, I was opposed- doing that. I was, I was doing more, mostly television uh-huh. um, in, my, uh, in my in my time at 20th Century Fox. But I was also uh, at the Producer- Producers Guild for a year before then. And uh, that's where I kind of fell in love with doing film. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that's kind of the impetus to go ahead and start Metanoia. And well, that and we had this incredible director, Alejandro Monteverde, who had just come out of the University of Texas, so coveted in in awards for his short films, mm-hmm. and uh, and we connected as well. And he is an artist beyond beyond mm-hmm. belief, and so it seemed very obvious that that's what the good Lord was putting together. Right. 
no, not to be a flatterer, but um, of your films that I've seen, particularly Bella and Little Boy, um, they're very, you know, beautiful films. Cinematically, they're just, the aesthetics are very pleasing. Thank you. You're welcome. So can can you... Have you seen to, Crescendo? No, I... Well, actually, I think I saw the preview, but I don't think I've seen the Oh, you, I recommend it. Okay. I recommend it to your viewers. It's actually online now. It's a short film. Okay. Yeah. Definitely. I'll have to look that one up. Um, but can you speak to how beauty has played a role in the films that you produce? Like, is, is that a you know, a factor in, it in is. your work. It is, but you're the expert on this. So what I wanted to do first, if it's okay, if you'll indulge me, mm -hmm. is we should define beauty. Yes. Or we know what we're talking about. Yes, absolutely. You, you, you read it in my in my introduction there, right? Yes. I, I'm, I'm, the I'm Thomistic. Yes. So, <laughs> so I know you're going to want those definitions. We, we need to define our terms here. Well, so we and that's actually another question I have for you. So we can go to that question first and then come back to this one. Deal. So for you, um, which, you know, I do think beauty is there is an objective beauty, but you know, if you can define it for you in a few words or a sentence, sure. how would you define beauty? I would, I would say the definition isn't for me. It's just the definition. If we believe in it, that, that it's objective, right? Um, mm -hmm. I, I follow St. Thomas. He says that there's a, there, beauty has three integral parts. Mm -hmm. They are symmetry or proportion, mm -hmm. clarity and integrity or completeness. Okay. And by each one of those, he has a very particular definition of, of each, but it's all very common sense. So by integrity or completeness, we can use the example of a, of a, of a statue. And let's say a statue is missing an arm. Mm -hmm. right? When we can instantly see that there's something that is incomplete about it. Right. And therefore it, it lacks something that we know should be there. Mm -hmm. And so the mind perceives the thing as, as not its ideal. Right. And therefore it's not as beautiful as it should be. And therefore it's not beautiful. Right. right? So if a thing is incomplete, if it lacks integrity, it mm -hmm. lacks something that should be there, then, then it lacks beauty. Secondly is, uh, is, is clarity. St. Thomas, and I think it predates him, but it might be the, the Greeks. But anyways, it's this notion that beauty leads to contemplation. Mm. And um, I'll speak about that a little bit. But uh, if you're looking at something and it's obscure and it doesn't lead to a thought that is true or good, um, then it lacks, lacks beauty. Mm -hmm. So if we, if we imagine, you know, kind of the modern art, which I rail against, right? But right. just... In complete agreement with you. <laughs> on, on, a, on, a, on an empty canvas right. and, and you don't, you can't make sense of what the thing is. Mm -hmm. that's, that's the opposite of beauty. Beauty will always lead to, to, to clarity and to, to contemplation, not to obscurity and, and chaos. Business. And chaos, mm -hmm. exactly. Mm -hmm. And we know because God's the author of beauty and God is truth. And then, uh, and then finally, it's, um, what's the last one? Did I talk about integrity? Yeah, symmetry or, or proportion, mm -hmm. right? So, uh, if, for example, uh, I had a deformity in my face and my eye was down at my chin, right. you would instantly know that that's very, very odd, right? right. And that something that should be there is not there. There's not the symmetry that right. leads to that contemplation, that mm -hmm. leads to that clarity, and it's required, that proportionality, right? If we saw a statue, and instead of it having its arms missing, one arm was, you know, mm -hmm. 600% bigger than the entire statue, we would know that that's, there's something wrong with that. Right. right? There's something not, not pretty about that. Uh, there's an ugliness there. And I think mm -hmm. the underpinning there, is that notion that beauty leads to contemplation, meaning when God made all things, he made them good. Mm -hmm. And when he made all things, he made them perfect to their design, mm -hmm. right? That you can see the thing and know what it is by its design, that's the clarity. It had everything that was necessary for it to be there, that was the integrity, and there's always proportionality in everything God makes, even at the subatomic level when you're looking at the strands of DNA or whatever. Right. Um, and so it's all an imprint and a reflection of the beauty that is God. Because mm -hmm. God is truth, 
and God is goodness and God is beauty. So mm-hmm. all three of those criteria are necessary for something to be beautiful. So that's quote unquote my definition of beauty, which is right. just St. Thomas. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a very good one. So I think there's room for all of us to adhere to that. <laughs> I hope so because yeah. St. Thomas is, is a guiding light. He's no, good he to go to. he definitely is. Yes. So then now that we've defined that, how are those principles? How do you apply those to the work that you do in film? Well, it's very, very difficult because we're, we live in a fallen world and it's easy to get caught up in subjective taste and other considerations uh, that have to do with more worldly things like, oh, by the way, sometimes not even worldly things, but like getting a project made, you know, mm-hmm. if the financiers want X or Y in the thing or whatnot. Mm-hmm. Um, but thankfully, this is why I left 20th Century Fox in a certain sense, so that we can hopefully control our own destinies mm-hmm. and make things that we believe to be uh, beautiful. All right. It's the, the criteria is objective. The application, that's where the subjective really comes into play. And subjective in a certain sense, right? If, if my palate is only used to McDonald's and junk food, I'm going to have a very difficult time enjoying a, a kale salad or, or something right. more, more delicate, right? That's a good point. Um, and, and same with beauty. If we're, if we're bombarded constantly with music that is discordant and chaotic and loud, repetitively, it's going to move our appetites, particularly the, the uh, concupiscible appetite, which is relative to, to the simple kind of more base things. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we'll, start habituating towards that and then we grow from a habit to a disposition and then once we have our dispositions it's very very difficult to shift them and so when something comes contrary to our disposition we feel this discordance right well same way with beauty if we are used to things that are very very ugly very very base very very vulgar extremely violent those sorts of things and we've come habituated to them it's very difficult to gain that sensitivity for something that is that is that is true and beautiful, and so the it really starts with ourselves. The first thing I think um, is we have to grow into virtues, right? To counter the damages that we've done by our sins or our vices or our bad habits or our concupiscible appetite, we need to grow in temperance. Uh, with the irascible appetite, we need to grow in fortitude and all the sub virtues. We need to grow in prudence and our intellect and justice and our will. Those are, as you know, the four cardinal virtues. Right. And in so doing, once hopefully we grow in these virtues ourselves, then we'll be much more sensitive. Mm-hmm. Um, not in the negative sense of, of sensitive, like I'm, I get offended or upset, but sensitive in as much as we can sense what is true and good and beautiful and bad things instantly appear as as ugly. Right. Um, so I think step one is, is, as always, kind of work on ourselves, grow in virtue, get mm-hmm. attuned to the truth, the good and the beautiful and get acclimated to it so that we can... Uh, and reflected in our work. Right. And for those just tuning in, you're listening to A Culture of Beauty. I'm your host, Sequoia Sierra, and today we're here with producer Leo Severino. So like you mentioned, it's kind of beauty is kind of a, you know, working from the inside out sort of a thing where, you know, you're not only having order and virtue within yourself and then that reflects within your work. So then I kind of feel like when you're of a certain mind, we tend to find those people who think along those same ways to work with. And that seems, you know, to be what a lot of the actors and artisans who have been a part of your films, you know, are all of that mindset, would you say? Not all. Okay. Um, I mean, on Little Boy, I remember there was a day where we had, you know, 600 extras in between right. cast and crew and everyone else. There was, you know, almost 2,000 people on set. Uh, and obviously you can't control that. But yeah, right. the decision makers, the core team, mm-hmm. relative to the creation, um, we try to to contain that as much as we can to people that have like mind um, because it's just it's difficult enough as it is with our all, all our own vices and sins mm-hmm. and imperfections 
to then bring on people that don't share the same lens and have decision-making authorities. It's right. a very, very complicated thing. Now, sometimes we just have to rely on God's grace because um, it does take a lot to get a project off the ground, right? And, and, right? and so we pray for that clarity to not compromise on the things that are important. Right. No, that makes a lot of sense. When it comes to the actual craftsman, mm-hmm. we'll take whoever is great. Right. As long as we're controlling the overall content and message mm-hmm. and we're establishing the tone of the set, you know, we want the best. Mm-hmm. We really want to, to elevate the art as much as we can. Right. Now, something for artists, I know even for myself that it sometimes, even even though when you go by St. Thomas's, um, you know, definition of beauty, that, you know, people will say, well, beauty's in the eye of the beholder or somebody who, like, for instance, the example you used of, you know, the statue missing an arm, or if you were to take somebody who was like an invalid, for instance, or maybe they lost a limb, we would know that that person isn't complete because you know they're missing a limb but we wouldn't say necessarily that that person's ugly we wouldn't colloquially no right but so what would you say to a lot of those artists who are like well you know this appeals to a certain you know it, it i feel like it's hard to apply sometimes saint thomas's thought to them in their work because they feel that there's still subjective elements there's a lot to be said about that mm-hmm. i mean you're right we are so far from a Catholic culture, mm-hmm. it is very difficult to have these Catholic principles reflected and understood by, you know, we, it's like we've cut off our tongues and we're trying to taste food. Right. Right? It's very difficult to, mm-hmm. to do that. Uh, but from this purely s- subjective view of, uh, of, of beauty, that it's just in the eye of the beholder, first thing I would say is um, no one actually lives that way as if that's the case. Okay. Right? A married man doesn't say to his wife, I think you're beautiful, but it's not actually in you you're not really beautiful. It's actually in my eye. And right. it's just the way I see you. But of your own, I, I, I don't know. You're probably ugly or not ugly. I, I just can't tell. It's just my right. perception of you. No one says that. Right. They say you're beautiful because mm-hmm. they recognize something objectively in the person. Mm-hmm. Uh, same, you, you can't deny that a, a waterfall or a lovely sunset or whatever. There's something in the thing itself mm-hmm. that is where the beauty resides. And if that's the case, then we're already on objective criteria. Mm-hmm. So when it comes to a, a, a person who has a, a deformity, it's, we wouldn't colloquially say, well, that's ugly. Because we would look at things that might seem very base, and in a certain sense it is, but we know that there's an incompletion. We know that right. there's a lack of symmetry. We know that there's, there, there's, there's a lack of proportion. Mm-hmm. So we know that's, that's not the way that it's supposed to be. Mm-hmm. And we know that, and we recognize that. However, there is something that's there that's far greater, mm-hmm. that's far more beautiful, mm-hmm. which is the human person. They are complete and they're proportionate in their body and soul composite as much as I am, as much as you are. Right. That dignity is infinitely more more beautiful and even more the virtue that the person can develop and the grace that can be accepted Mm -hmm. which is of a higher order because it's supernatural ultimately is far more beautiful because Mm -hmm. it far more reflects the goodness the truth the symmetry the proportion the clarity of god Mm -hmm. so all of us at some level if we if we were honest would accept that we're ugly why because we're fallen Right. And because of that, there's something lacking us. There's a there's a, a deprivation in our existence. We're not mm-hmm. the way we're supposed to be. So we would recognize and would not be offended by that. And some of us have physical deformities right. um, that in, in and of themselves are not pretty. Mm-hmm. However, they're meant and they're given to us as a grace by God in order for us to grow in things that are actually more beautiful, more true, and more good. Right. Um, so hopefully that answers the question. Yeah, no, that, that does. Thank you. Well, and then kind of piggybacking and continuing off of that idea, um, you had said before how, you know, true beauty will hopefully lead to contemplation. So, you know, through film, 
hopefully the viewer will be led to think about something beyond because they usually highlight, you know, a virtue or some, some issue that, you know, we really want to focus on yes. or truth. Yes. So keeping that in mind, there's also, uh, which this is similar to what we spoke about, but there's even, you know, in things like the liturgy, which, you know, I disagree with where they say, well, because society is so bad, like we talked about where it's like eating junk food. So them eating a delicious home cooked meal, their taste buds would kind of reject it because they're just not used to that. But to where they, some people advocate that, that we have to start a little bit lower in order to reach the masses just to kind of funnel them in before introducing them into a deeper level of yeah. beauty. So what, what would you say to something I like that? I would say, that? how's that worked out in the last right. 50 years? <laughs> Agreed. <laughs> I know it, it, it's the exact opposite. We don't reduce mm -hmm. the standards of what is beautiful simply because people are unable or un, unwilling to appreciate it. That would be like saying, you know, Michelangelo shouldn't make the Pietà because some people aren't going to understand it. Right, I mean, they, they, they've been dealing with this for forever, right? There was the Vandals and the Visigoths and the whoever that right. were, were trying to be evangelized by, by Catholic culture. Uh, you don't reduce the objective criteria or the definition. There is a side of it where, you know, St. Paul says, you know, you don't give hard food or I think he uses... Pearls before steak. swine sort of thing. No, not thing. that. It's, okay. it's the other one. It's in, it's in the epistles where... Where St. Paul talks about, um, you don't give solid food to a baby, right? You oh, start right. with milk. Mm -hmm. And and there's that, but that just means teaching and showing that there is objective beauty and right. here's how you appreciate it. Mm -hmm. Don't you don't take the beauty and you bring it down to the to the base and the ugly right. because it's gonna stay there. Right. Have we seen a gradual I hate to not be political correct, but have we seen a gradual improvement in the beauty of the liturgy in the last 50 years when it comes to, to the average, to the modern liturgy? Yeah, no. No, it's, it's exactly the same. In a certain mm -hmm. sense, it's there's a timelessness to beauty. Mm -hmm. Anyone can walk into um, the Vatican and see the Pietà and be moved and touched, and that was hundreds of years ago. But um, things that are that are not as beautiful don't have that timelessness because they're, they're less like the eternal. And so often I'll walk into a Mass and there's felt banners that are very ugly. They might have been cool in the 60s right and there's music that seems to be stuck in kind of that era mm -hmm. from when a lot of these uh these changes were made seems to be much more much less timeless much less eternal much less uplifting much less prone to contemplation right and uh same with the music you hear beautiful polyphonic gregorian chant and your mind is instantly and i don't care who it is right there's something of the divine in it mm -hmm. um but then you get a guitar you start singing kumbaya to mass uh it's not exactly the same is it right no, absolutely. I agree. Well, and, and like you said, there's not that movement to contemplation. And I think that's where the focus is off because then the, you know, quote unquote beauty, it's just about ourselves when it's at that base level where it's like, let's, let's talk about what's maybe appeasing to people yes. in the here and the now, but it's not lifting them beyond themselves. So it's stopping, you know, so a hundred percent accurate. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, and like we said, that's the, the, if, if we're going to follow St. Thomas Aquinas and fulfill all those qualifications of beauty, then it needs to lead above and beyond. It will necessarily mm -hmm. lead to mm -hmm. contemplation. Right. It's just the nature of the thing. Mm -hmm. right? when, uh, and we see it in the beginning, right? God out of, out of this chaos speaks order to the thing and it is good. Well, that order is something that is discernible and knowable. Right. And the good is something that we, our wills are drawn to. Mm -hmm. So if something is beautiful, in the intellect and in the will, it's necessarily going to lead mm -hmm. to contemplation. Yes, absolutely. And we'll be right back. You're listening to A Culture of Beauty, 
and we have Leo Severino with us today. This week's sponsor is the Claremont Village Eatery. You can text or call orders to them at 909-675-2189. You're listening to A Culture of Beauty. I'm your host, Sequoia Sierra, and we're here with Leo Severino, producer. And Leo, we were talking earlier um, that you've written a book called Going Deeper, A Reasoned Explanation of God and Truth, available through Ignatius Press. Can you tell us a little bit more? Yes, it's, the title's actually ex, A Reasoned Exploration of exploration. God and Truth. Okay. It would be a, a handful, gargantuan task to try to explain all of God <laughs> and truth in one, right. one book. Well, I'm but, feeling, uh, does this have to do with St. Thomas and Thomistic Theology? It does, it absolutely <laughs> does. I believe a gift that, that the good Lord has granted me with is is the ability to try to take a lot of these really complicated concepts and, and make them palatable and explainable. Mm-hmm. Which you did very well and with beauty. I feel like we've got a much better grasp on that. So thank you. Thank you. Then you should pick up my book. Awesome. I because will. I don't talk about beauty there, <laughs> but uh, it's kind of what we were talking about with the culture. We don't live in a, in a very Catholic culture and there's not a lot of formation, even amongst Catholics. Mm-hmm. Me being one of them, when I was growing up, I had no formation whatsoever. And, uh, and I was mentioning how I read a book by C.S. Lewis, and it was very, very profound, but it was also very simple for me. I think he writes in a way that is as accessible to the common man as possible. And um, I started actually here in Orange County. We're at mm-hmm. Crystal Cathedral right now right. Uh, uh, doing this interview. But here in Orange County, when I was working at a law firm, I was going to Mass at a place that, that was in desperate need of a youth minister. And at this time, as I mentioned, I was going through all these, I'd just gone through all this crazy conversion. I had all these thoughts in my head as, uh, of arguments about God and truth and whatnot. But they somehow wrote me in like week two to try to be the youth minister for this or to help with the youth ministry. And within like a month, youth minister was like, uh, you kind of know more than I do. Why don't you kind of take over this <laughs> thing? And I said, okay, well, I've never taught anything in my life, but I'll, I'll try. And I, I developed this kind of program called Going Deeper. And it was really inspired by one particular teen who was coming every week to the, every Sunday to the youth ministry sessions after mass, but always had kind of her arms crossed. She was kind of in the corner and wouldn't participate. And, mm-hmm. and otherwise she was very you know, socially apt. She just wasn't interested. Right. And one time afterwards, uh, her father was late to pick her up. So it was just some of the adults and myself and her. And I got to talking with her and, and she said, you know, I'm here only because my father is forcing me to be here. Oh. I have no interest in any of this stuff. Mm-hmm. And I don't believe in God. Oh, wow. And I said, all right, well, that's big of you to be here nonetheless. Right? Right. It must be torturous for you to sit here uh, through all this stuff. She said, oh, we have, we have some fun. We do fun games and whatnot. And I said, well, I don't mean to pry, but why don't you believe in God? Mm-hmm. And the poor girl just set forth literally the book that I had just read, The Problem of Pain. She had gone through so many things in her life that were as as tragic as, as we can imagine, as just wow. terrible, terrible things that she was dealing with. Mm-hmm. And her response is basically, how can you tell me that there's a God who loves me when he's basically abandoned me and let all this terrible stuff happen to me? Right. What do you say to that, right? To, she's a freshman girl. She was maybe 14, 15 at max. Maybe she was a sophomore. Gosh. But um, I said, well, I don't know exactly how to talk about this, mm-hmm. but have you considered this? And I started explaining some examples that had been going through my mind of, of 
how God is our father and nonetheless allows pain. And um, the example I, I recall very vividly in my life is a, a moment I had with my, my first daughter. It was the first time she was uh, nursing. Mm -hmm. And um, it was the first time I was away. I was with her alone. She was just a few months old mm -hmm. away from my wife. She just nursed her and I was like, oh, I'm going to take her. I'm going to do this. I'm going right. to go out and <laughs> visit my parents who were down the road and whatnot. Mm -hmm. And her cry of uh, when she's hungry was instant and obvious. Right. And I'm with my, my mom and all of a sudden I hear the nah, nah. I was like, oh no. <laughs> so I was like, I need to get her mom. It's time for a nurse. I, I literally was, was exactly at the time that I should have been, oh, that I God. thought I had just enough time to get there. And so I put her in the car seat and she's crying and she's crying all the more now that she's in the car seat because now she's crying and she was in my arms and I was soothing her a little bit. Now I'm getting her out of my arms, put right. her in this car seat from her world, like, what are you doing? You're abandoning me. Yeah. And she's crying all the more. Now I'm driving and it's only a mile and a half, but I get to where my house is. And I, I recall it was Labor Day or something. There was some sort of parade that was happening in the streets. Oh, no. <laughs> yes. And I was unaware of this. And so this road was blocked and now she's crying all the more. So I pull her out of the thing. She's inconsolable at this point. Mm -hmm. I, I pull aside and I'm now running with her and bouncing around and she's crying all the more. She's inconsolable. Oh. And I finally get her to, to my wife and then she nurses and she's, she's fine. Right. Right. Now imagine from her perspective, I must appear to be the worst of all. Here <laughs> right. she is. She's hungry. I took her from her food, from her food source, right? <laughs> and now, instead of trying to console her, give her food, I'm not holding her. I'm putting her and strapping her in this device, in this contraption. And instead of going straight to the thing, I actually veer off to the right, start pulling her out, bouncing her around, Gosh. right? If only she knew that I did all those things precisely because I love her. That I was trying to get her what she needed. Mm -hmm. What was ultimately going to be good for her and soothe her, right? It would wow. break my heart if she, later yeah. she was like, what a terrible father you were right. when you did this thing. <laughs> no, it was the exact opposite. Yeah. Um, and I used a lot of these sorts of examples to try to get the point across to her that God allows these things, not because he's a sadist. Mm -hmm. um, he allows these things because he allows us and the people around us to have free will. And in so doing, they can choose very, very bad things. But out of the very, very bad things, God is there to give us the means to get to the good. Mm -hmm. And uh, I used a couple more examples and um, it piqued her interest. Mm -hmm. So she came back the next week, her arms weren't crossed as much. <laughs> and she started participating more by the end of the year. She proclaimed the belief in God. Wow. By the end of Thank a few God. months after, uh, thanks be to God. Yeah. And, um, and she became very devout and helped a lot of other teens. So... That inspired me, you know, if this teen as a freshman had these deeper questions, maybe there's others. So I was like, hey, after about a year of this, I said, listen, I'm gonna be at the local coffee shop on Wednesday nights, whoever wants to show up and you have deeper questions, I'm gonna start this thing called Going Deeper. Mm -hmm. And like 18 teens showed up and then I wow. did a bunch of sessions with them and then mm -hmm. 50 teens showed up and then like 150, so it kind of grew. Right. It became this thing and then, um, and then I started doing the same thing actually in, in Hollywood with adults and actors and producers and directors and whatnot. Mm -hmm. And that was all the fodder for this book, Going Deeper. Wow. And it's basically common sense, hopefully, examples and progressive steps exploring how can we get to a knowledge of God by not relying on, on just faith and religion, but through reason. Mm -hmm. um, which we know as Catholics, obviously we can. That's 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 a dogma of our faith that God is knowable by the things that He created, right? Right. Um, it's, it's even in the scriptures, but most people don't know that. And mm -hmm. it's my attempt at trying to meet people where they are by using very common sense, easy examples 
to progress them all the way from the falling of a leaf mm-hmm. all the way to the existence of God and human purpose. Wow. So there you go. I recommend yeah, the book. Definitely. I like it. Looking I like it. To reading it. I like it not because I wrote it. <laughs> I like it because people have been responding so well to it. Right. And uh, and there's been a lot of fruit from it. So you can judge a tree by its fruit. Yeah, no, absolutely. It, right? mm-hmm. Well, and especially with our culture nowadays where people want to see facts. They want to know what's logical. I mean, and that's what a lot of, you know, modern society claims about the church. They're like, oh, well, that's not scientific or you can't be proved or you can't. Nonsense, a whole lot of it. it. They just haven't read. They haven't read St. Thomas. They didn't know that the (laughs) Catholic Church invented the scientific method. Exactly. And they don't see, you know, that faith and reason and science and everything, it all goes hand in hand. That's right. So very excited for that book. Thank you. So we'll be right back. You're listening to A Culture of Beauty. You're listening to A Culture of Beauty. I'm your host, Sequoia Sierra, and we're here with producer Leo Severino. Leo, we you have a few films um, coming up. This is the year, and also Mary. Can we talk a little bit about those films that sure. you're working on? Sure. Yeah, we've got actually, th- by God's grace, there's three films that we've been working on that are coming out. The first is actually just finished wrapping in, in South America and Columbia. It's called Sound of Freedom. Oh. And it stars Jim Caviezel, who uh, Wonderful. was Christ in, in yes. the Passion of the Christ, and Marissa Tomei and a couple of others, and it deals with uh, this CIA operative mm-hmm. who kind of stumbled into a child pornography ring. These people were embezzling money. He did kind of white collar crimes. Mm-hmm. And and then once he discovered that this was the case, he realized who the people were that were making this sick uh, product. Right. But the government kind of bureaucracy and the rules that govern the CIA made it so that was out of his jurisdiction. Okay. And so he's like, I, I know who these people are that are, corrupting, abusing, and kidnapping kids and trading right. them as slaves, um, but I can't do anything about it. So he actually wound up leaving the CIA and starting his own thing oh, wow. where they would pose, they would go worldwide, they would pose as sex traffickers, oh. as sting operations with local governments to then bust oh. the traffickers and save kids. And they've saved hundreds, if not thousands of kids. Wow. It's just a wonderful, inspiring story. Um, and it's just finished wrapping in uh, in Columbia, South America, which is where my parents are from. And then uh, I've got another one, This Is The Year, which is a teen road trip comedy, which is all about uh, dispelling the notion that love is just this butterfly feeling that is actually right. more than that. It's willing the good of the other, and it's based in objective principles and mm-hmm. whatnot in a, in a fun road trip sort of way. So that's great. And we're starting uh, pre-production on that next week. So I just have to move to Mobile, it's Alabama exciting. for a few months. Yeah. Yeah. Except the Mobile, Alabama part. It's exciting. Right. Um, <laughs> nothing against Mobile, Alabama. It's just uh, my home is here. Right. My family is here. And then the most ambitious project to date that we're working on is the story of the Blessed Mother. Beautiful. And it's told in a very particular perspective. And I can implore your audience's prayers for this project because it's been Absolutely. a labor of love for a long while. And, and uh, we've been writing it and and trying to get this thing off the ground for, for a good while. And we've got, thankfully, some, some great theologians behind us that are, that are vetting everything for us. But um, it really is a story that, if told without Mary, without our Blessed Mother, it would still be a compelling story. That's the way we're trying to do it, uh, because we're centering it around, ultimately, the slaughter of the innocents. Oh, wow. Um, it, basically, the logline, if you will, mm-hmm. is this cruel, most powerful tyrant, king of this area, feels that his kingdom is threatened by the birth of a child. Mm-hmm. So he's going to do anything in his power to find the child and then kill the child. Mm-hmm. And of course that child is, yeah, is our Lord. Yeah. And so it's the plight of Our Lady and St. Joseph and our Lord from Jerusalem to Egypt. 
Okay. That's the story. Wow. And uh, so it's kind of a chase thriller. And um, so much of it is obviously right there in the scriptures involving the Magi coming and uh, Herod then realizing where they are and the chase and whatnot. But a lot of the gaps are actually filled in by the same book and this, well, not the same book, but the same mystics, uh, Blessed Anne Catherine Emmerich, that mm-hmm. Mel Gibson used for The Passion of the Christ mm-hmm. because she had these incredible visions. She was, she was a, a nun who, who was in Europe and never gone out to the Holy Land, but she had these incredible visions mm-hmm. of what went down in the life of our Lord. That, and there's this book, The Dolorous Passion of Our Lord Jesus Christ, that became the movie, The Passion of the Christ, mm-hmm. or that was the inspiration for the movie. Right. And in the same way, she wrote about all this time about our blessed mother and what she was going through and the path that they took from to Bethlehem and then back mm-hmm. for the presentation and then throughout to Egypt and this plight and, and how it all kind of went down. And it's an incredible chase thriller, but it's a gargantuan task because we're talking about our blessed mother right. here who we know is the sole boast of our fallen nature, right? So right. how do you get a, a, the perfect woman and have an arc in the character, which is what's necessary. Oh, that's true. Right? Never thought um, of that. Yeah, uh, and that was <laughs> that a great answer. Yeah. We believe we've come across something that actually could work. Wow. Um, so I'll leave it at that. Yeah, and no, that I sounds fascinating. Your, um, implore your, your, your prayers for the project. It's a monumental task, and we hope to be shooting uh, next year, in the beginning of next year, mm-hmm. in Georgia. Oh, in Georgia. Not oh. a state. Right. A country. A country. Yeah, south of uh, of Russia. The former Russian satellite. I've been there. We went for a scout, and it's just beautiful and perfect. And and it's like ninety six percent Christian, mostly Georgian Orthodox. They have wow. a very very massive devotion to Our Lady. Oh well, so then that's it's, it's perfect. <laughs> it is. It'll be more perfect when they're all Catholic. Right. Just a matter Absolutely. of time. Absolutely. Yeah. It's just, just a matter, matter of time, time. till we're all reunited. Amen. And I'm sure this film will help with a lot of that as well. Hope so. Yes. Well, thank you. And we look forward to seeing those films and thank you for being on the show and for the wonderful work you do. We need those lights in the world, especially Hollywood. Um, so thank you. Thank you. Pray for us. Thank you for all your good work here. Appreciate it. All right. Thank you for listening. You've been listening to a culture of beauty to find more information. You can go to www.occatholic.com or www.aculturaofbeauty.com. A huge thank you to this week's sponsor, Claremont Village Eatery. Located in the Claremont Village next to the seven Claremont Colleges, they have a fun spin on avocado toast. They're the house of the pigacado, paninis, burritos, house tart lemonade, jamaica, and iced teas, and more. They only use olive oil and avocado oil in their cooking, and they have vegan, gluten-free, and vegetarian options. Breakfast and lunch is served all day. Call or text orders to 909-675-2189.